0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today in our series, Life Lessons from David, The Man Who Would Be King, we'll look at what happens as David faces perhaps the lowest point of his journey. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30 as Dr. Neufeld teaches a message on finding strength in God
1: alone. Suffering is a mystery. Everyone suffers. Oswald Chambers once noted that the unrepentant thief and the repentant thief were both crucified and died on a cross, as well as the Son of God. He said, by these signs we know the widespread heritage of suffering, which of course means that Christians suffer along with people who deny Christ. At the famous Council of Nicaea, which was held in AD 325, it was the first opportunity of Christian bishops from around the world to come together and discuss the nature of Jesus. There were 318 delegates who attended, and among those 318 leaders of the Christian faith at that time, only 12 of them had not lost an eye or lost a hand or did not limp because of the torture that they had received as followers of Jesus. Furthermore, as most of the Psalms, especially those written by David, were born in difficulty. And that's why they are so precious to so many of us, because the experience of suffering is a universal human experience. Today, I don't want to ask and answer why it is that suffering exists. That's for another time. Today, I want us to ask and answer what we do when we suffer. Because our response to suffering marks us as either people of faith or those who in our suffering abandon our faith. It said that Charles Spurgeon on the wall of his bedroom kept a plaque with Isaiah 48 verse 10 written on it. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction, it said. We are well served to remember those words. 1 Samuel 30 might be seen as the low point in David's life. And at the outset, even before we begin to read the chapter, we might wonder, well, how can that be so? Already, at least seven attempts have been made on his life, and in his desperation, he has become a man hiding out among the Philistines, and he, in order to survive, had begun to lead a double life. What worse thing can happen than that? As we come to this chapter, we come to the realization that things can always get worse. Perhaps you're a person who right now can identify with this experience of David. You would have thought your sufferings couldn't get worse, but they have gotten worse. And you might be wondering how to respond. I think 1 Samuel 30 can be greatly encouraging. The last chapter ended with the Philistines gathering their troops together for a great battle against Israel, and David has been spared from going to battle with the Philistines and is sent back to what, in at least 16 months, has come to be his hometown, that is, the town of Ziglag. No doubt the entire ordeal was emotional, and no doubt during the three-day journey home, his men would have been encouraged as they would have thought about, you know, the reunion with their wives and their children, and perhaps a time to rest and reflection and a renewal lay before them. So let's read chapter 30, verses 1 to 6. Now, when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters." But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Remember that the Amalekites were a nomadic people who carried out raids against all manner of towns and villages and disappeared into the wilderness. They would sack towns, gather all their wealth that they could get, keep as many people alive as possible so they could sell them into slavery. And this is how they lived. Remember also that Saul was given the job to utterly annihilate them, and remember that in failing to keep the Lord's command, he had lost his kingship. You know, all of that means that among David's people, no one knew where the Amalekites had gone. The likely response was that they would probably not be able to find them. Furthermore, the anger that arises seems to be primarily directed not at the Amalekites, but against David. And even though in moments of grief it's common to find an object of anger, in this case the anger is not completely without justification. After all, David was volunteering their services in the fight alongside of the Philistines, and had they simply minded their own business when the Philistines and Israel were going to war, they would not have left their village hopelessly exposed. And so one can almost imagine the comments going from bad to worse. There are times in our lives when we go from long hardship to intense suffering, and we think of our difficulties as this is the last straw. For those of us who love to, in times of suffering, ask the question of why, we might notice that for David, there are at least two things that heightened his suffering. The first is that David had led a duplicitous life, and that was deeply felt among his own men. But the second reason, as we will see, is that God was using this experience to shape David for the kind of leadership that would be necessary in his role as the future king. The fact remains that anyone in leadership receives criticism, is a target of anger, and at times feels very much alone. The real question for David is not, oh, Lord, why have you allowed this? But the real question is, oh, Lord, what do I do now? And it is this second question that we see David as the man who is after the heart of God. Our text very simply says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. No, he didn't go out to argue with his accusers or, on the other hand, roll into a ball and become depressed. Instead, he fled to God to encourage himself. You know, for us who read this account, the key question is, what did David do here? What does he mean to strengthen himself in God? You know, one of the ways of answering that question is to, from the life of David, find examples where we might find this principle. So if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 16, we actually find a phrase that sounds very similar to this one. At that time, the city of Kilah, which David had saved from the Philistines, were prepared to betray David to Saul, and Saul himself was coming out to kill David. And then in 23:16 we read, And Jonathan Saul's son rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. So in 23.16, Jonathan strengthened David in God, and in six, David strengthened himself in God. Both phrases sound the same. The only difference is in who is doing the strengthening. Well, if both phrases are the same, we do well to remember what Jonathan did to strengthen David. For Samuel 23.17 says, And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. No doubt Jonathan reminded David how Samuel had come to him and anointed him for his kingship of Israel. The calling on David's life came from God and not from David's desires. Jonathan was simply reminding David of what God had promised him. Is this what David did when the men were thinking of stoning him, reminding himself that he would be king? No, I I don't think so. I think he was reminding himself of the promises that God had made to him. So what does that mean for us today? I think to encourage ourselves in the Lord is to remind ourselves of the promises that God has made towards us. We might start by remembering from Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love Him. Or perhaps we might remember Ephesians 1, 7-8, that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Or we might remember Hebrews 9, 15, that those who are called have received an eternal inheritance. Or we might remember Romans 8:31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And in the next verse, and for those who are called, how will he not graciously give us all things and further, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? Just the other day, in between preparing messages for this radio broadcast, I, I quickly ran out to the bank and ran into an old friend whom I had not seen for quite a few years. And he told me, John, I heard your radio broadcast for the first time today, and I was praying for you. And I, and I prayed that God would allow me to see you because I have a verse for encouragement for you. And now, here you are, and we've just run into one another by accident. And he said, you know, there are no accidents. And then he shared a verse God had given him for me. You know, all that kind of thing encourages us greatly in the Lord, doesn't it? I don't know whether you've ever had something like that happen to you. Um, Roger Ellsworth said, to strengthen ourselves in God means to remind ourselves of what scripture says about God and his promises, and we bring those truths to bear on the situation. Every trial causes opposing voices to ring in the ears of the child of God. One is the voice of our circumstances telling us that our situation is hopeless. The other is the voice of faith telling us that our God is sufficient for the trial. Indeed, Are you discouraged today? Before you do anything else, before you make plans what to do next, or before you roll into a ball and and suffer in a corner somewhere, go to your God, find the scriptures that make a difference, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you afresh that these promises are true, and encourage yourself in the Lord. You know, when we come back, we'll see that the encouragement David received allowed him to move forward to victory and pave the way for his kingship and build the character of a man who was after the heart of God.
0: Just when David and his men have a chance to avoid going to war and returning to their homes, we find another twist to the story. As the situation takes a turn for the worst, this introduction shows us a man who has changed. For in this moment of crisis, he strengthens himself in God. After the break, stay tuned as Dr. Neufeld continues the story to reveal the real life applications from David's journey to become the greatest king of Israel.
2: From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for the Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special ministry friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, You'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with friends and family and enjoy incredible ports of call, an amazing ship, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.
1: It is difficult to know how to act when we are discouraged. In Psalm 40, David describes a situation in his life which can easily be applied to what he went through in 1 Samuel 30. The Psalm begins, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Or consider David's words in Psalm 56, three to four. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And so we find David in a place where his men are breathing mutiny, speaking of stoning him, and he, crying to the Lord, finds himself encouraged and now is emboldened to take action and to take leadership. So let's read verses 7 and 8. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall we pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. We notice in this passage that Abiathar, who fled from Saul's massacre of the priests, is still with David. David calls him to bring the ephod. The ephod was a part of a garment of the priest which hung over his shoulders, covering his chest. It contained twelve stones, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the breastpiece also contained what was called the Urim and Thummim, two objects that were used only by the priest to ascertain God's will in a given matter. David calls his priests and asks him if he should pursue. This is a legitimate question since the Amalekites are a nomadic people and it would be very difficult to discover where they had gone. It's not altogether certain that he could go and search for them and find them at all. But through the priest, God tells David he will be successful, so he will take all of his fighting men. Now where should they go? It seems obvious that they should go south, but as David's experience with Saul had taught him, just because you send an army to find someone doesn't mean you're going to be successful. I mean, from one vantage point, we might say that David was setting out with poor odds of finding anyone at all. But on the other hand, God had spoken to him. He will find whom he is looking for. David represents any Christian man or woman today who is going forward with an understanding that God will never leave us or forsake us. In the kind providence of God, we know that God will not tell David at each juncture, now go right or now go left. David will go on a search. He must be fast and he must look for any sign that he can find. His men follow him again, but one senses the situation is tenuous. What should happen if he fails? But David is confident. Even though God doesn't tell him at each moment what to do, he is confident that he will not fail. Let's continue to read verses 9 to 10. So David set out, and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. We are beginning to get a sense of just how exhausting this pursuit actually is. Remember, the same men had just marched for three days from the Philistine camp to Ziglag and now to the Besor Ravine, about 25 kilometers of hard march with minimal resources. And so one-third of his men are left behind. Well, in the next section, we find that David is continuing in a southerly trek. And as they do so, some of the men find an Egyptian by himself in open country. And that would have seemed odd. And so they took the man and brought him to David. The man must have been exhausted and famished, and so before they could even interview him, they give him some of their own resources, their food and their water. It turns out he had not eaten anything or drunk anything for three days, and so three days without water means that he is at the very point of death. They revive him, and then they interview him. Verses 13 and 14 say, And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. Now, the picture here is of a captured Egyptian slave who, when sick, was simply thrown away to die in the desert. He, just like the families of David and his men, were captured and used as slaves and discarded or sold at will. He's a victim, and David now uses him to guide him to the Amalekite camp, but only after he gets David's promise that David will not kill him. Now, I'm reading from verses 16 and 17. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. Now, from this section, we imagine a very large camp of Amalekite raiders. Even though they're drunk and David and his men descend on them unexpectedly, the battle lasts for a full day, and the ones who escape are still 400 men, and they're but a remnant of what's left. But from David's perspective and the perspective of the men with him, this was an answer to prayer. You can only imagine the time it must have taken for husbands and families to fall into each other's arms with gratefulness and kindness to God who saved them. And then on top of that, the spoils from the Amalekite camp must have been considerable. They load everything onto whatever is left there to carry the goods, and they drive the cattle on ahead, and slowly but slowly, they begin to make their way home. And then they come back to the brook Besor, where they left 200 men. And the remaining 400 men are very angry. They have paid the price for going after their families, but these 200 men had not. And so the 400 men become abusive. You 200 men will get your families back, and that's it. Your houses might be burned to the ground, and everything that you have might be lost, but you get nothing because you didn't join with us. Now verse 23 says, But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. Here's what David knows. The ability to find the Amalekites, including the finding of the half-dead Egyptian slave, and the surprise attack on a massive force who were thankfully drunk at the time so that they could defeat them. All this came from God's providential timing and not from the abilities of himself and his 400 men. What they were able to accomplish was a gift from God. And here's what we must learn. When we suffer, as we all do, and when we emerge from our suffering, we need to give thanks to God for His grace. Every blessing that we have in this life is a part of what the Lord has given us. Even our ability to emerge from times of suffering comes from God. That's why David would treat the exhausted 200 just like he treated the 400 who went with him in battle. And that is also why he would take a great portion of the plunder and send that portion to the elders of Judah who had lost so much because of the raids of the Amalekites. You know, suffering can do that. It can make us bitter, and it can make us abusive to others and angry and and looking for someone to blame and holding on to everything that we have and demanding that others not share. Or suffering can allow us to realize something we should have known from the very beginning, Every breath, every good day of health, every time we have a good day comes not because this is normal and this is what we deserve, but because God, who is merciful, has had mercy on us. And realizing that everything depends on a gracious God allows us to be gracious to others. You know, the lessons from 1 Samuel 30 are many we have learned that in our deepest hours of suffering, even when we suffer because of our own sin, we must look to God and encourage ourselves in our God. But we have also learned that when God in mercy delivers us from the day of trouble, he calls upon us to remember that it was mercy that delivered us, and so we need to be merciful as well. Turning to God in the day of trouble, being encouraged in our God also leaves us by being encouraging to others. Let God continue to encourage us to bring joy and relief to those who are suffering when we have been graciously delivered.
0: John, thanks so much for your message today, and it's a wonderful reminder that David really did turn things around for himself. Even despite the suffering that he went through, he came back to God. But is it possible in our Christian experience that suffering can drive us away from God?
1: You know, there are so many different forms of suffering as I think about it. I mean, sometimes we suffer from an illness. And normally, people will understand that the illness is almost always unrelated to something that they have done. Although it can be related to that, as we know, but in most cases, we might say it's not. But sometimes we suffer because of foolish things that we've done. And when we do that, it's very dangerous time in our lives. We might say, "Well, now God is showing me all the things that I've done wrong, and I'm getting my comeuppance." You know, what I've sown, I'm now reaping. And in some senses, that can be true, but. If we're paralyzed there, then we'll never learn from this. And I think the first thing to take into those experiences of suffering is that we need to begin by reminding ourselves of the loving kindness of God, that he keeps loving us, that his grace is undiminished towards us, that he is determined to do what's best for us for all of eternity, and that he will never let go of our hand. We need to find ways to encourage ourselves for if we don't. We will simply roll into a ball and say, I'm of no use whatsoever anymore. David's example reminds us that we can emerge on the other side of great suffering. David's example shows us that even in the midst of the worst
0: crisis, we can turn to God in those moments. With his help, we can learn to face it with hope and endurance and even be a blessing to others in the process. I hope that you've been greatly encouraged by this message today. Be sure to join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld wraps up our three-week series, Life Lessons from David, The Man Who Would Be King. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This month, check out Truth in Life today as Dr. John Newfeld teaches the Book of Romans. Nothing could be more important than understanding these critical principles of faith that the Apostle Paul brings to us. And remember, beginning this month, Truth in Life today is being released on Vision TV Sundays at 12.30 Eastern. There's a lot more ahead as Dr. Neufeld invites pastors, authors, and Christian leaders into the studio to discuss some of the most important issues of life and faith. And remember, you can also listen to or view Truth in Life today's current episode or one of its previous episodes by visiting backtothebible.ca, by downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.